Yeah, it's great to be here. We're finishing up our series uh, called The Greatest, where we've been um, looking at the life of David uh, and the life of Jesus and kind of comparing and contrasting them um, at different points. Um, Today, we want to look um, at the lives of uh, David and Jesus in regards to being conquering kings uh, and what that means, um, what that looks like. It was one of the great turning points in biblical history and and in the history of Jerusalem uh, around 1000 BC uh, when King David's troops defeated the Jebusite forces at Jerusalem and made the city the Israelite capital. And this wasn't the, the first or the last time that David would conquer and defeat foreign forces. The nation of Israel would continue to expand in all directions in the coming years under King David's leadership. Time and again, he led his troops into victorious battle, beating the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, I think about four or five times. He gained control of international trading routes. He made the nation of Israel a major world player, an economic force as well as a military force. King David became rich from the spoils of battle. Whenever they won a battle, they would loot the place and bring the money back to Jerusalem. And the nations began trading with them. I have a photograph uh, that gives you a picture of just what uh, King David did. So before King David, there was King Saul. And uh, this green area is the size of the nation of Israel when King Saul was in charge. Um, The dark purple area is the space that King David took charge of. This is the land that he conquered, the, uh, the armies that he beat. You can see just how much land he took. And then at the very top, the light purple is, uh, is the area that King Solomon, David's son, uh, would take. David was renowned for many reasons. And as I've said before, um, he had his good qualities and he had his bad qualities. We can read stories of him showing extraordinary forgiveness and restraint and then turn the next page and and read stories of shocking ruthlessness. We can see him as humble on one page and on another page we see him as arrogant. We can see him as strong and then we read stories of him looking very weak. Like, well, I suppose like all human beings, it's very difficult to put King David in a box. He's remembered as a man after God's own heart, as a shepherd king, as a poet, a musician, and among many other things, as a conquering king. David is renowned because he is exactly what the Israelite nation yearned for. A warrior, a leader, a savior, a king. Back in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, we read of the Israelite nation requesting a king. Up until this point, they'd had uh, judges in charge of them rather than kings. Now, what's the difference between a judge uh, and a king? Uh, A judge was a person who was raised up by God to lead the nation at a very specific time for a specific crisis. When the crisis was over, then the judge usually went back to doing whatever they did beforehand. Uh, A king is a person who holds office and is in charge for as long as he lives and who passes that power down to his descendants. 
Judges didn't make a government. Kings do make governments. These can be both a blessing and a curse, I suppose. Israel wanted a king in 1 Samuel because Israel looked around at all the other nations and people around them, and they all had kings. So Israel went, well, they all have kings. We want to have a king as well. We want to be like everyone else. Now, many years before this, there had been a man called Gideon who was one of the judges. Um, And Gideon had been offered the throne. And he refused it, saying, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. By Israel requesting a king, they are in some ways saying, we want a man to rule over us rather than God to rule over us. We want a person, a figurehead to rule over us rather than God. The man who was chosen was a man called Saul. Uh, Saul is described as being young, good-looking, a head taller than everyone else. Um, I suppose you could say tall, dark, and handsome. Um, And he was chosen to be their king. And Saul didn't quite work out the way the people had envisioned. As is often the case, how many times have we seen a, a political leader take office to great celebration only to find their popularity fall off the side of a cliff in the years that follow. Tony Blair jumps to mind. Um, Perhaps you could even argue Obama, maybe Enda, certainly Bertie. And so David takes the stage after Saul. And for the most part, David is adored by his people for all the days of his life. He is the conquering king they all wanted. The problem with conquering a force by a force is that it never seems to last, though. There's always someone stronger around the corner, someone more ruthless, someone smarter coming up behind you. Conquering kingdoms can't survive by just military and political and economic might alone. And as is the pattern of the world that we see around us, the Israelite kingdom, long after David is gone, finds itself under the occupation of another more powerful empire. When facing a a powerful and cruel ruler occupying your land, oppressed people end up being overwhelmed. They give up any hope of change. The only hope that remained on the horizon for Israel was the Messiah. There appeared to be no other solution attainable to them. No solution by military or political or economic or religious means was open to them. They needed a Messiah. The Roman Empire was so powerful that only direct intervention by an anointed saviour could bring about change. And that's where the Old Testament kind of ends with Israel becoming occupied, not by the Romans yet, but at the start of the New Testament, we see that they are occupied by the Romans. The Romans have seized much of the control uh, over the known world, including Israel. And what the Romans wanted to do was they wanted to bring about world peace, which is really great. Um, And that was their aim. They wanted to bring about world peace by complete domination. So as long as you did what they said, uh, the way they said it, you were good. If you didn't, you were in trouble. 
who were threatening the world peace. The Israelite nation yearned for their Messiah, for a savior, a warrior, to come and set them free from oppression. They yearned and longed for the son of David. Throughout the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we catch glimpses of the desire for a conquering Messiah. From Peter's quips and uh, disdain at the idea that Jesus would die, Peter wanted a conquering king, not a rejected servant, to John the Baptist's doubts while he sat in prison. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus just wasn't acting the way John and Peter thought a Messiah would act. He wasn't doing the things they thought the conquering Messiah should do. Even in the book of Acts, after Jesus has died and and risen and spoken to his disciples for 40 days concerning the kingdom of God and the coming Holy Spirit, their only question to Jesus, the disciples' only question is, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, is it now that you're going to get rid of the Romans? Is it now that we go into battle and take back our land? These are people who have grown up expecting a Messiah. But Jesus wasn't the Messiah they expected. They expected and had the imagery of a conquering king who takes possession of and sovereignty of a nation and land after war. They probably expected the transition to be on the battlefield, full of blood and gore, that the conquering king would lead his army into destroying the other nations around them. The Messiah was expected to win God's battles. The nation of Israel believed that that meant that the Messiah would battle the Roman Empire and win and set them free. Essentially, they wanted David. David was a powerful force, a violent force that conquered many lands and people. Jesus was a powerful force, but a non-violent force that didn't come to conquer lands and people, but came to conquer sin. Now, what do we mean when we talk about conquering sin? Well, first of all, we have to understand what sin is and what it does. Sin isn't simply wrongdoing. I think perhaps all of us, or or maybe I should just speak for myself. When I hear the word sin, the first thing that comes into mind is when you do bad things. But sin is much more organic than that. Sin is the failure to be genuinely human. In the essence, sin is people giving their hearts and their lives to things that are not God. And because God is the source of all life, sin brings death. It's too simplistic to think about sin in terms of do's and don'ts. Sin is an attitude problem. Sin is a focus problem. Sin is us as humans handing over the responsibility and power that God breathed into us at the beginning of time to other forces. We were created to, in the image of God, 
and we were created to have responsibility that God give us. We are to be stewards that look after the earth. We are to be worshippers that send our praise to heaven. And when we sin, we hand over our inbuilt purpose to non-divine forces. We give other things the power and authority they were never meant to have. Sin is when we want to get life from something else other than God. But these things can't give us life. They give us little bits of pleasure here and there, but they can't give us life. Sin is us not reflecting God in the world and not reflecting the praises of the world back to God. Sin is missing the mark of genuine humanness. British theologian Tom Wright puts it this way, and um, this is a, a good quote that I like. You can see this in the obvious examples, money, sex, and power itself. Like fire, these forces are good servants, but bad masters. Not for nothing were they treated as gods and goddesses in the ancient world, as indeed many people do today, though not using that language. Sacrificing their resources, their time, their energy to obeying their every command. These forces need to be overcome. Not so that we can live lives in which they play no part, but so that we can live fully human lives in which they make their contribution as and when appropriate. They stop being demons when they stop being gods. Money, sex, and power itself isn't sin. But when we turn them into gods, it becomes sin. I think we all desire to live fully human lives. Jesus himself said that he came to give us life and life to the full. And the only way to have life to the full is to have our sins forgiven, to be freed from the forces that enslave us, that entrap us, that entangle us. to be freed from the sources, uh, from the forces uh, that we give our time and energy to. The forces that we end up obeying. The only way to have life and life to the full was for God to take these forces that enslave us and end their power. If God's plan to rescue and restore the whole of creation with humans as active agents in the middle of it is to happen. Sins had to be dealt with. They needed to be starved of the oxygen that gave them life, that turns them from ordinary bits of God's creation to distorted and dangerous bits. On the cross, we see very clearly who the true God actually is. And we're drawn to worship the true God. The true God who is revealed in complete and utter self-giving love. The true God who is revealed in Jesus. That worship displaces our focus from the other forces. Turns our hearts and our minds and our whole beings towards the one true God. Why is sacrifice needed to defeat evil? 
Why doesn't God just send in the, uh, the tanks? Well, because he's not that sort of God. At least in my experience, he's not that sort of God. He doesn't send in the tanks. God himself comes in to take the weight of evil on himself. Remember the quote I read about uh, a few weeks ago from Napoleon? I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. Jesus Christ was more than a man. His empire founded on love, not force. On love. The problem with conquering a force by force is that it never seems to last. If one force beats another force, it's still a force that wins. You cannot beat the usual sort of power and the usual sort of means. So instead, God invited all the powers and forces to descend on him, to descend on Jesus, to do their worst, to take their best shot, and ultimately to be defeated. As Paul writes in Colossians, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, exactly how this happened is still a little bit of a mystery to me anyway. But this is the picture that the biblical authors give us. That Jesus' death and resurrection led to the forgiveness of sins and to the defeat of all the forces that enslave us. What does this mean for us today? Firstly, there's a whole new way of life open to us. We don't have to be slaves to money, sex or power or anything else. Jesus has freed us, and a restoration process has begun. A restoration process where we will be healed, where we will be made genuinely human, where we will be the best versions of us that we can be, where we will return to our roots, become stewards of the earth and worshippers of God. In Romans, we're described... We are described as more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus, the conquering king, helps us to be the conquerors too. And I know it's hard to believe this some days. Even in the past week, we wake up in the morning, we turn on our TV or we uh, look at our phones and we witness nothing but evil evil forces causing pain and suffering, evil political forces, evil religious forces, evil military forces, evil economic forces. Jesus' death on the cross has issued the beginning of a revolution to restore the earth, but it hasn't finished it. But here's the thing, we aren't just meant to hang around until it's all done. We don't just get a free ticket to a party in the sky and sit down for the rest of our lives. We are freed from the forces that enslave us so we can join with Christ. We are freed to be stewards and worshippers today. 
We are freed to live in his kingdom now. We are freed to urge in the kingdom of God by our prayers and by our actions. This is why we run missional communities in Ignite. This is why expectant happens and the men sheds and restored lives and quantum and the overs and our prayer meetings and, 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 and. We do this stuff to urge in the kingdom of God by our prayers and by our actions. In Revelation 19, at the end of the Bible, we read of Jesus' second coming. Jesus, the conquering king. And as far as John, the author, is concerned, this final battle, though serious, is much more like a clean-up operation. It's the end of the revolution, when these forces, these evil forces, have been dispatched, and humanity and the earth is restored. The day when, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And with our prayers and our actions, we proclaim, come, Lord Jesus, come. We yearn for that day. We long for that day. But until then, we take up our role. We, by the forgiveness of sins, become conquerors ourselves, living out our inbuilt purpose. With our prayers and our actions, we urge in the kingdom of God. Let's pray and then we'll sing again. Father God, we, um, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We are so aware that we, we struggle to, to grasp and understand exactly how you conquered these forces. We struggle and, and grasp to, to conquer these forces ourselves through your power and your might. But help us to believe that you have conquered these forces, that we are free, that we are free to be stewards of this earth, that we are free to be worshippers of you, that we are free to be conquerors, to urge in your kingdom with our prayers, with our actions. Help us not to be just a Sunday morning meeting. Help us to actually reflect you to this world through everything that we do, through all our words and deeds. Give us wisdom, give us courage. Teach us. Guide us.